You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. Have you been naughty or nice? There's been a concerted effort uh, in some right-wing circles in the last few years to make me this kind of anti-Christian, Jesus-hating boogeyman. I'm uh, an anti-Christian bigot. That's what you constantly see, these Matt Barber and Brian Fisher and Peter LaBarbera and Tony Perkins weirdos are always insisting that I am anti-Christian and anti-Jesus and anti-everything else. And I often think of them at this time of year when they're having their war on Christmas orgasms and spinning in circles about secular humanists and atheists like me who are coming to destroy Christmas or that we hate Christmas. Pat Robertson said it best, most hilariously last year when he said that the Grinch is coming for Christmas. The Grinch is trying to steal our holiday, Pat Robertson said, not acknowledging, of course, that Christians stole this holiday from the Romans, but whatever. We'll leave that alone. Robertson, the nation comes together. We sing Christmas carols. We give each other gifts. We have lighted trees and it's just a beautiful thing. But atheists don't like our happiness. They don't want you to be happy. They want you to be miserable. They're miserable, so they want you to be miserable, so they want to steal your holiday from you. I would love it if Pat Robertson would drop by my house one year for Christmas. Because what he would find in our house, in my house, the anti-Christian bigot, our house, mine and Terry's, is a lighted tree covered with glass ornaments that Terry has collected over the 20 years that we've been together. Christmas carols playing on the stereo, presents wrapped and under the tree until Christmas morning when they're torn apart. He will find my grandfather's crash on the mantle. He will find stockings hung by the chimney with care. Our house... As the Brits like to say, something is camp as Christmas. There's no camper house on Christmas than ours. Terry and I, for DJ when he was little, but for ourselves, we keep Christmas. I really like Christmas, as Tim Minchin sings. If you're not familiar with Tim Minchin, he's the Australian comedian uh, and songwriter and singer. Uh, he has this really beautiful song. If you're a secular humanist, if you're an atheist like me, and you feel all conflicted about perhaps your love of this holiday that right-wingers insist that we hate, you might want to go Google Tim Minchin, White Wine in the Sun is actually the name of the song. But I always think of it as I Really Like Christmas, which is the refrain. And it's just a beautiful song about what Christmas for sane people actually is and what Christmas for many Christians actually is and for many believers actually is. It's just getting together with family and that's not an exclusively Christian phenomenon, this getting together with family shit. Hindus do it too. Jews do it too. Atheists do it too and atheists like Terry and I who were raised in Christian families, we do it in the Christian style. We do the Christmas thing without the myths, without the superstitions, without the imaginary friends but we do the Christmas thing. 
I bake cookies. I send them to my siblings. I bake my mother's Christmas cookies every year because my mom's not here to do it. Every year without fail, wherever we were in the world, if we weren't at home, a tin full of my mother's chocolate Christmas snowballs would arrive. I've taken up that mission and I every year bake those cookies for my siblings, for my stepfather, my father and I get them in the mail so that mom is remembered and that Christmas is kept. And I really like it. I like the decorations. I like the songs. I agree with Tim Minchin. I quite like the songs, though the lyrics are spooky. The lyrics can be spooky, but I quite like the songs. And I quite like the holiday. And this effort on the part of the religious right over the last few years to divide the country between those who celebrate Christmas and those who by existing and not believing – are somehow attacking or undermining or trying to steal their Christmas. I'm into your Christmas. I dig your Christmas. I Christmas the shit out of your Christmas. I would put my Christmas against Pat Robertson's Christmas any fucking day. We have a Christmas Eve dinner. It is a blowout. We open our house on Christmas Day to all of our friends and neighbors. That is a scene. That Christmas Day at our house can be quite a mix. We live in a Catholic neighborhood. We have our Catholic neighbors over, some of whom are conservative, and they are milling around in our living room and our dining room, drinking champagne and eating my mother's cookies with some of our other friends, our friend, the professional dominatrix, our friends, the porn stars, chatting amiably by the fire with our friend, the Catholic mom with the three kids from up the block. It's actually kind of a beautiful kind of Christian-y, Christmassy moment to see these people that the culture warriors insist – are or ought to be at each other's throats. The sex radicals and the family values types. They're all at my house on Christmas Day. Enjoying it. Enjoying Christmas by our tree. So if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a great one. It's Christmas Eve today when the podcast went up. I really do hope that you are having a Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, whatever you're celebrating, however you're opting out or opting in, I hope you're having a great December 24th, 25th, whatever it is you're doing. And if you're like us, like my family, like me and Terry and DJ, and you're celebrating Christmas, even though the Pat Robertsons and Tony Perkinses, Peter Lababeras of the world insist that you are the enemy of Christmas, we're right there with you, Terry and I. And we know what they don't know. That Christmas is ours too. And they can't claim it any more than they can claim patriotism, any more than they can claim the country. We're going to take our country back. Wasn't your country exclusively to begin with. And Christmas isn't theirs exclusively either. Christmas is ours as well. And we're having it. And I hope you're having it. And I hope you're enjoying it. Merry Christmas if that's your thing. And now your calls. Hello, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old. Hopefully you can tell that I'm male and straight. You know, getting laid via the female vagina has not been working out for me for the past couple months. However, you know, I'm kind of curious about what it'd be like to get with a dude. I'm not really attracted to guys. I've never been like, well, that guy's real hot. You know, I've seen some good-looking dudes, but never, you know, one that's gotten me a hard-on. However, you know, if I'm drunk and I go to a gay bar, you know, maybe I would like to get my dick sucked by some dude. So I'm wondering, you know, what the etiquette is, I guess. Is it disrespectful to be like, well, 
I'd like to get my dick sucked, but I wouldn't really want to suck your dick. The idea of a cock in my mouth or anywhere near my butthole is really, you know, just not something that appeals to me. You know, I'm so I know it appeals to you, but you know, we're different. Different strokes for different folks. So I guess I'm wondering, is that a, just like a total dick move to be like, well, you can suck my cock, but I'm not going to suck yours or really touch your dick at all because I'm not gay. So, yeah, I guess I'm just, you know, trying to branch out because I'm curious. So any advice would be welcomed. Well, we took a vote here at uh, Savage Industries after playing your call, and we all agree that you have such a sexy voice that we all want to blow you. There's something about your lopey dopey voice and your sort of omnivorous selfishness that's kind of appealing and happy christmas to you i bring you good tidings of great joy there are people out there lots and lots of gay men out there whose particular turn on whose thing is to sexually service a straight guy who is not at all interested in reciprocating sexually servicing a straight guy who isn't going to touch them doesn't even want to see their dicks. You can find these guys all over Craigslist volunteering to blow you, waving their hands over their heads saying, yes, me, pick me. I will suck you off. Some of those guys might be kicking around in the gay bars that you're going to even though you're straight and not at all interested in other men. Those gay bars that you're sometimes in where you see other dudes, uh, they might be in that place. Most guys in a gay bar, most gay men, the overwhelming majority of gay men won't be interested in what you have to offer unless, you know, it's a very specific kind of walk on the wild side. They're kind of into you and it's different and weird. So you might get shot down if some guy flirts with you and you say, look, I'm straight, but I've always sort of been interested in getting a blowjob from a dude, but I can't have a dick in my mouth or my ass. I'm really not interested in anything below your neck. Some guys might go, yeah, that's not my scene, dude, or I'm not, that's not what I'm up for. You might hit the jackpot with one of those meetings. But if you want an assured strategy for gay guy blowing me without any expectation of reciprocation success, go online already. Have you heard of the internet? It exists to bring straight guys who with the mouth is a mouth is a mouth attitude together with gay guys who want nothing more than to wrap their mouths around straight cock. Like I said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Get online and you will be getting off. And the etiquette of the situation, just to clarify, you asked about the specific etiquette. Be honest, be upfront, say who you are, say what you want. And then that other person can opt in or opt out. If who you are and what you want isn't something that they're interested in, they will demure. But who you are and what you want is something that a small but significant and vocal and aggressive minority of gay men are absolutely positively looking for. You are the fantasy figure for some of these guys. You are the jackpot. Put yourself out there and you will not lack for gay blowjobs for the rest of your straight fucking life. Hey, Dan Savage. It's a bunch of girls here. We have concerns about a friend and we would love to address her, but we realize you're probably the best person to talk to her because she might listen to you better than she'd listen to us. Uh, she wants to be very sex positive. She also wants to have a lot of sex without using condoms and allows people to ejaculate inside of her, which we are very concerned about. So we thought maybe if you could just tell her 
not to um, let people ejaculate or, or just use condoms. If you didn't have a if you could please just say her initials are S&M. S&M, please wear condoms on the radio. We'd appreciate it. Yes. So it's just respectful to herself and her partners, and it's not a sex-positive lifestyle. It's just degrading to herself or others. So please reinforce condoms. Yay, condoms. And condoms and condoms. Bye. Thanks, Dan. I've encountered uh, some people out there in the world like your friend, um, women and men, gay and straight, who confuse sex positivity with recklessness and self-destructiveness. And when you challenge them about their recklessness and self-destructiveness, they will accuse you of being sex negative. I've had people that friends who I thought were out of control or behaving in self-destructive ways that I've spoken up to or confronted or expressed my concern to and they've accused me, me, I'm going to say that one more time, me of being sex negative when I came down on them for – I don't know, blowing a million straight guys, whatever they were doing that I thought was kind of appalling. I'm not sure if me saying to your friend S&M use condoms is going to make a difference because the issue here isn't sex positivity and her confusion about what that actually is but her self-destructiveness and recklessness in the moment or her perhaps desire or fetishization of that being ejaculated in. Maybe that's her thing. Maybe that is for her the ultimate kind of turn on to know that he's about to blow that load in her and leave it in her. And so going out there and getting all the semen is for her what sex is. So for her to be sex positive, it kind of requires that and she doesn't have the good sense to realize that you can have a desire that's not one that you can actualize constantly and all the time with a million different partners because of the risks that are bundled up with that desire. And to be pumped full of a million different people's semen or however many people she's sleeping with uh, is a desire or to always have a, a sexual encounter end with that when you're engaged in multiple partner sort of sex is a desire that is just bundled up with too many risks to be lived out in real life. And if being confronted by your friends and challenged by your friends isn't Getting that through to her, I don't know if being confronted by some stupid faggot with a podcast is going to really make that much more of a difference. But S&M, hello. How are you? It's your Uncle Dan. Uh, what you're doing is reckless and stupid and you're panicking your friends because they're concerned for you. I get it. It's fun when someone comes inside you. It's sexy to have that feeling of, I don't know, having a load dumped in you or maybe being a cum dump. Yeah, it's all really hot. Believe me. I know. But – Pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, the kinds of guys who would do that with a random, with a stranger, who would ejaculate inside a stranger are probably being similarly reckless with other people, which means that they are at higher risk of having a sexually transmitted infection. You are selecting for a higher risk cohort through your behavior. And so you're setting yourself up for pain and heartache and perhaps – sexually transmitted infections at a faster clip than your friends who are being a little more responsible and you might want to knock that shit off because your pussy is an awesome thing and you want to have it for a long time and you want it to be in good working order for a long time. So when you meet that one guy or that couple of guys or handful of guys that you want to be with regularly and you can all get fluid bonded and tested, that you can be pumped full of as many loads as you like, as often as you like and as safely as it is actually possible to do that.
But right now, Mm-mm. you're not being safe. You're not being smart. And it isn't sex positive to be dumb and reckless. It is just dumb and reckless. Listen to your friends. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old hetero guy in a great monogamish marriage with my with my uh, 32-year-old wife. We've been married for 12 years. We opened up our relationship a few years ago, and it's been awesome, but it's raised an issue that we need your advice on. So my wife really, really, really doesn't like giving oral sex. And for years, I just like accepted this because I didn't want her to force her to do anything that she didn't want to do. So as a result, our sex life, wonderful in other ways as it is, is mostly fellatioless. Unless I like stick it in her mouth in a moment of passion and she'll give me whatever she can and then I feel bad and go on to other things. But then we opened our relationship up and here's the thing. She totally blows every guy she's been with every single time. And she says she doesn't want to, but it's expected, so she does. Um, When it comes to me, she says she'll do it with the same quiet reluctance if I want, but I don't want that, right? And, you know, from me being with other girls now, I've discovered that I really, really like oral sex. I know you said oral sex is standard equipment in a relationship. I don't want a reluctant blowjob, but I do want blowjobs. Since we live in a small town, we only get to see other, uh, we only get to date our other people long distance. So do I just need to be content with oral sex once a month from other girls whenever I see my other partners? Or is there a way to convince my wife to want to give that to me at home? In the meantime, I can't stand the disparity that, she blows these other guys and not me. She says she doesn't enjoy it, and, it's, and she's not being honest with them like she is with me, and surely I would want her to be honest with me, and that's uh, surely I wouldn't want her to do anything that she doesn't want to do. Anyway, tell me what to do. You say you don't want reluctant blowjobs, and yet you're a little jealous because these guys, these other men that your wife uh, is sleeping with, uh, with your permission, you're monogamous, open... You're jealous because they're getting blowjobs, but they're getting blowjobs that are also reluctant blowjobs. They just don't know that they're reluctant blowjobs. You know that they're reluctant blowjobs that they're getting. So they're not getting anything – these other guys, they're not getting anything that you actually want. They're not getting enthusiastic, happy, love, oral blowjobs from your wife. It's not like she adores sucking their dicks and could – and can't stand sucking yours. It's just she's willing to go through the motions with them. Early in the relationship, as she went through the motions of blowing with you early in your relationship, reluctantly. And it's not like you're going without blowjobs. You get blown once a month. Married 12 years and in your 30s and you're getting a blowjob once a month? That's not too shabby. You're not getting that blowjob from your wife because you're monogamous, because you opened your marriage. Your wife has successfully outsourced the enthusiastic blowjobs that you deserve, she has allowed for that to happen. She perhaps has helped to make that happen for you, but she doesn't have to do it. Just like people who have gardeners don't have to mow their fucking lawns. You're getting oral from others with your wife's enthusiastic consent. You're getting enthusiastic blowjobs, just not from her. She's giving some reluctant blowjobs to other dudes that she allows them to think maybe aren't reluctant, but I bet she's telegraphing reluctance at every second. So I don't actually see what the problem is here. I think you have to take, yes, 
I'm getting blown by other people for an answer. Yes, I'm getting the kind of blowjobs I like from other women for an answer. And also, huh, the blowjobs my wife is giving other men aren't blowjobs I would want. And as they get to know her better, particularly you know, if one of these other dudes becomes sort of a long-term thing for your wife, they're not going to want those blowjobs either once they realize what kind of blowjobs they are. They're not going to want those blowjobs that your wife gives any more than you want the blowjobs that your wife gives. And I have no magic words that you can mutter. There's no potion. There's no aphrodisiac. There's no MDMA that you can dose your wife with that's going to make her at in middle age, in her 30s, develop a passion for blowjobs that she does not possess. Sorry, I can't be of more help. Yes, Dan. Uh, my name is Gus, and I am 25 years old, and I recently got into a relationship with a wonderful man that I could see a future with. My problem is I just found out something recently that he is actually prostituted out uh, by this guy, and I've addressed it with him, and he doesn't really know what he could do to get away, and also that he has had relations with uh, somebody who's been HIV positive within the last month, and he doesn't really tell me that he's wanting to be tested again until his next normal date, and I'm trying to talk him out of that so we could have better relations. Uh, what kind of advice can you give me, or do you think I should just abandon the entire thing Altogether. Before we get to the specifics, the alarming specifics uh, of your question, let's just back up a little bit and look at the big picture. Why do we date people? Why do we date people? Why do? What are we trying to leverage into our lives with the levers that are our dicks if we're gay? What are we trying to bring into our lives? The, the, you know, the last thing that you want to invite into your life when you have a relationship, needlessly, is a lot of chaos and drama. Chaos and drama comes. Chaos and drama is a part of life, an unavoidable part of life. And it's a good idea generally not to pursue chaos and drama that is already evident, already manifested in someone and to pursue someone who's going to bring at least initially into your life some pleasure and joy and companionship and intimacy and all that other good stuff that we look for in a relationship. Fully aware of course that – if a long-term relationship results, that there will be conflict and there will be some chaos and there will be drama uh, because all of those things are unavoidable. And what you have here is someone that you're dating who is presenting to you at the outset a chaos and drama of an order of magnitude that's pretty staggering. He is being sexually trafficked somehow. He's being pimped out, forced into prostitution by some other mysterious person that you don't really know anything about or know the details about how it is exactly that this guy that you're interested in is being blackmailed or leveraged or whatever into prostitution against his will, essentially trafficked and raped. That's chaos and drama right there. What are you signing up to get involved with there? And are do you have the means and the metal to be the superhero in this situation and rescue this guy from a circumstance that he seems incapable of extricating himself from? You have to ask yourself, are you that person? Do you have the capacity to, to, to save him, to rescue him? Can you be Superman? And if you can't, 
Maybe better not to date him. Maybe better to be his friend. Maybe better to be his sounding board. Maybe better to do a little research and find out what sort of organizations there are in your area that work with people who've been trafficked or blackmailed into prostitution to see if there are organizations, social workers, counselors, police officers. If he's being for – I am pro-sex work and I am pro-sex workers' rights. But if he is being – if this guy is being forced into prostitution against his will, that is a matter for law enforcement. Not that I think he should be prosecuted for prostitution but whoever it is that's pimping him out, whoever it is that's trafficking him against his will, forcing him into prostitution should definitely be prosecuted. You could look into that and then there's the matter of him having recently slept with someone that he knows to be HIV positive. Well, there's all sorts of things to unpack there. Were they safe? Did they use condoms? Did they have unprotected intercourse? Did the guy who is positive, is he in treatment? Is he taking his drugs as scheduled? Does he have an undetectable viral load? All these things would point to if indeed he used protection and the guy is in treatment, the likelihood of him having himself been infected through that one encounter would be very low. If he's being unsafe with the men – to whom he's being pimped out, that's a much bigger risk than one random sexual encounter with one guy who happens to be positive. You should be more concerned if you're worried about HIV or sexually transmitted infections with the prostitution, the forced prostitution than with that one encounter with a pos guy. That's just crazy posphobia on your part. But again, like circling back to what I said at the start, you're interested in this guy and – Perhaps this guy is attractive and has some wonderful qualities that you would look for in a boyfriend. But unfortunately, they're kind of bundled up right now with a lot of chaos and drama that you may not want to take on. We don't have to be perfect to be dateable, but we do have to be in good working order. We do have to be in dateable shape, dateable condition. And sometimes people are rescued. Somebody's in a really bad way. Somebody comes along who's attracted to them, interested in them and is willing to do the work to, to help them out, to get them to a better place so that they can perhaps have a future together. And maybe you're that guy for this guy. But if you aren't, if you don't think you have it, if you don't think you can do it, you're not a bad dude for backing off. You're not a bad dude for looking at the whole package and saying, I don't think – I can sign up for this right now. I don't think I can save you. So think about it. Think about him. Think about the situation he's in. Look around your community. See what resources are available for people who have been trafficked or forced into prostitution against their will. Call them. See if they work with also men, male prostitutes. Some organizations that work with sex workers don't work with male sex workers. And then offer those resources to him once you've nailed them down. And then think about dating him some more. Get him tested. But you know what? If he won't get tested, irrespective of everything else, if he won't get tested, if he doesn't regard his sexual health as a priority, he's probably not going to prioritize yours either. Maybe he's not in a place right now where sexual health and STI testing seems like a high priority for him because there's so much else going on in his life. But you seem to be invested in those things. You want to prioritize sexual health and safety. So maybe that's just all by itself an indication that you guys aren't right for each other. Like I said, you're not a bad guy if you look at the whole package and decide you can't do this and you can't save him. But you can help him. 
Even if you can't be his boyfriend, you could be a friend. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old, uh, and I was going from Minneapolis to Los Angeles. And much like the one from episode 369, I believe, uh, this guy kept kind of inappropriately touching my leg. And eventually, uh, it was just really not a good sort of situation. And I was actually reading Jesse Baring's book, Why is a Penis Shaped Like That, um, as recommended by you. Um, so he asked me about that a couple of times. Anyway, it sort of evolved into him rubbing my leg and touching my leg and then propositioning me um, in a way that was pretty much out of the blue. Again, I'm not against people propositioning me and I say no and it's over, but it was kind of this really awkward and humiliating dance. So I did say no, but I was wondering, is the airline responsible for any of this? Is this something that I could report? I mean, I said no and I shut him down, but I keep thinking about how awkward it made me for the rest of the flight, which is about three hours, and how, if there's any action that I could take or should take, um, again, maybe it was just enough that I said no, um, but in regards to the airline. Sorry about that book recommendation that seemed to invite this kind of attention. You know, I was on a flight once uh, last year on Southwest and there was a guy sitting next to me. It was Terry, me in the middle and this other guy who was inappropriately touching my leg. I felt. But it was a little hard to tell because the way airlines are configured now, the way you're all packed in there with how small the seats are and they keep shrinking, it's almost impossible to sit next to somebody in a coach without inappropriate-ish touching being part of the design. It's just built into the experience, the lovely flying experience, the inappropriate touching. And some creepers will take advantage of this forced intimacy, this perhaps – physical contact that is a part of the airline package these days. So the guy kept inappropriately touching your leg. He noticed you were reading this book. He made some comments about the book and then he hit on you in a way that made you feel very uncomfortable and you shut him down. You said no and it sounds like he knocked it off. I, you don't specifically say that he knocked it off but you do say that you shut it down. I imagine that if he continued, if he persisted to hit on you, you would mention that fact. So he hit on you and you shut him down and then you had three hours to spend on a flight. Another horrible part of the airline experience. If you have an awkward interaction with a seatmate or someone nearby, you are stuck with that person for the rest of the fucking flight. You cannot escape. The only thing the airline can do for you in that moment, if you feel awkward or you're being sexually harassed by another passenger, is you can go speak to a flight attendant. And you can say what is happening, why it's a problem. You can ask to be moved. Sometimes there are empty seats. You might have gotten bumped to first. But there's really not a lot the airline can do after the fact. I'm not sure what would be gained by calling the airline and saying this creep was sitting next to me and creeping on me and he continued to creep on me until he made the big creep move and propositioned me and then I told him to knock it off and he knocked it off. But it was awkward and I had to sit next to him for three more hours. And the airline is going to say we're very sorry. Maybe we can give you a – Extra Coke next time you fly with us. There's really not a lot they can do about it. After the fact, in the moment, perhaps they could have moved you or someone could have come and scolded the creeper and told him to knock it the fuck off and your embarrassment could have been shifted onto his shoulders when he was called out by a flight attendant and told to stop creeping on you. Very sorry about this. Very sorry about what you were put through and if – I played a small part in it because you were reading a book that I recommended, Jesse Baring's Why Is My Penis Shaped Like That, which is excellent and I recommend that everyone read it, just not in the middle seat.
Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old male from Australia, uh, but this call is actually about a friend of mine and his girlfriend. They were in a relationship for about eight years together. They have a two-year-old son, and they got married at the start of 2013. However, less than three months later, she admitted to several infidelities with other women and then proceeded to come out to him as a lesbian. Uh, my friend took the marriage breakup really hard, as you can understand, and our tight-knit circle of friends have been as supportive as possible to both parties. However, they separated nine months ago, and he is showing no sign of moving on and is still extremely bitter about life. He's seeing a psych, and he's part of a few support groups um, every now and again, uh, but he still displays really public inappropriate behavior, um, things like his newfound hatred for lesbianism and his general and open dislike for anybody in love to the point of saying a few months ago that he doesn't believe in the sanctity of marriage and that real love can never truly exist because he can never totally trust another person, which was said to me at my own wedding. Um, most of our friends have given up on him now and I feel like he, I'm one of the few friends he has left, but to be honest, I just can't do it anymore. And despite numerous reminders that he needs to perhaps dial back his opinions when in public and consider a different therapist, his behavioral patterns still repeat themselves over and over. Dan, I can't imagine what he's going through and what he is continuing to go through, especially considering that they have a young child together. And I'm trying really, really hard not to be an asshole here. And I don't want to do the fade away on our friendship. But yet I don't think that telling him to his face that I think he needs to move the fuck on with his life will be the crystallizing moment that either of us are looking for. So, um, Dan, what do I do? You say you can't possibly know what he's going through. You know what? Millions and millions of people walking around right now have gone through exactly what he's going through, exactly what he's gone through, the end of a marriage, the breakup, the divorce, the shared custody where you have to be involved for the rest of your life or at least the next 16 years in this case with the person who broke your heart and disillusioned you about love and marriage. Lots of people have gone through this. There are support groups for divorced people out there and for single parents out there. There is the Straight Spouse Network at straightspouse.org, which is specifically for straight people who discovered late in a marriage or early in a marriage, in his case, that their spouse, that their partner, that their husband or their wife was gay or lesbian. So there's a lot of support out there for him and the fact that there's a whole organization specifically for guys and for women who are in exactly this position that he was in proves that he's not the only fucking one. And it's shitty and it's too bad and on behalf of all queer people everywhere, you can tell him that I apologize. But you know who the authors are of his misery? The folks who make it impossible for people to be out, to be who they are sexually. She did what she was told to do by people who pump homophobia into the culture, by the very types of people who in Australia, where you're calling from, successfully overturned marriage equality in the one state where it was legal. Homophobes and bigots. They bully susceptible and vulnerable and weak lesbians and gay men into believing that they can never come out and so they nail their closet door closed. They get in an opposite sex relationship with someone that they like enough to go through the motions and they figure this is how they're going to live for the rest of their life and then they reach the breaking point and then they come clumsily and disastrously out of the closet. And there are consequences in that kind of a coming out. 
for the children that they've had with their opposite sex partner and emotional consequences for the opposite sex partner, sometimes devastating emotional consequences for the opposite sex partner who's been lied to and misled and abused as he has, as have others. You need to do what you say you don't want to do, which is to grab him by the shoulders and shake him and say, get the fuck over it. And he shouldn't be angry at out lesbians. Out lesbians are not the authors of his misery and his heartbreak. Closeted lesbians are. When he goes off on out lesbians, you tell him that he should thank the out ones because the out ones are not doing what his ex-wife did when she was closeted. Out lesbians are not marrying and lying to poor, lovesick, duped, straight guys. The closeted ones are. He should support a world in which all people who are gay or lesbian feel comfortable enough to come out early in life because then what happened to him would not have happened to him. You also might want to say to him, look at your kid. But for this relationship, that kid, your son, would not exist. Can you not accept that even if your relationship didn't work out, even if you were the wronged party here, even if you were lied to and misled – that you got something out of this, that something positive was brought into the world. Would you rather your son did not exist? Confront him. And if you lose him because of this confrontation, if he's so in love and with his anger, so attached to his rage, that you lose him in one knockdown, drag out, screaming, yelling argument, sounds like you'd be well rid of him. Sounds like he's not a lot of fun to hang out with. Sounds better and perhaps more effective than the fadeaway. Maybe you'll only lose him for six months or a year. Maybe he'll blow up at you and scream and yell at you and then walk away and think about what you've said to him. And maybe in three months or six months, he'll be able to admit to himself that his friend who cared enough to put the relationship on the line and confront him was right. And that he's being a jerk and as angry as he has a right to be, there's only so long you can hold on to that anger before the only thing that it destroys is yourself. Maybe he'll come to that epiphany if you risk confronting him. Refer him though in that confrontation, early enough in that confrontation, maybe print out the Earl, refer him to straightspouse.org. He needs to unload on some people who've been where he is now and have worked through it and gotten past it. For his son's sake, he needs to do that. Hi, Dan. I am a bi girl in college. I'm a sophomore and I'm in a monogamish relationship with my boyfriend. I just started going to parties this year and I brought my freshman friend along who has never drank before and I was there to guide her and help her out, you know, or keep an eye on her. And we had a total blast last weekend. And I noticed she was a little drunk and flirty, but that's not uncommon, right? It's now the next day, and we are texting all day, and she started talking about lesbian porn and getting drunk at the next party and having dreams about us making out, and it's kind of hot. Um, I find her really attractive, but she has become such a good friend this semester that I'm kind of scared of losing her as a friend as well. Um, I don't know if to make a move or not. Um, we have a lot of classes together, too, I should probably mention. We're in the same major, and we'll 
probably be spending a lot of time with each other. Just how can I not fuck this up? Please help me, Dan. So have you fucked this girl yet? <laughs> no. Oh, I was hoping to catch you in bed with her. <laughs> no, I was in the library, actually. <laughs> Close enough. So why the hesitation? I don't understand. It's just because um, I'm kind of shy. Because what? Because you're I'm shy? I'm kind of shy, and, and she's, um, she's kind of become like a good friend recently, and I've been kind of feeling like the big sister kind of role because she's a freshman. And, and what are you? I'm, well, I'm a sophomore. Well, you're a worldly wise sophomore, and she's a young and innocent freshman. It, it would be it would be a first for an American it would be a first for American college campus I think for a sophomore to sleep with a freshman that would be shattering all no, sorts of I social mean, compacts. <laughs> I don't I don't I need to make fun, but it sounds like you're into her. You guys have a rapport, and the only thing at stake if it doesn't work out, and you know you can look at any relationship and and head it off at the pass or decide not to pursue it by filtering it through the what if it doesn't work out filter. Yeah. You know, all your, all, the only thing that could possibly happen, the only negative repercussions if it doesn't work out is some brief awkwardness that you might have to push through just by being grown-ups. Like, I think part of it is just kind of the whole Minnesota-North Dakota uh, conservative attitude we've always had or just kind of that oppressive thing. I was like, she can't be my friend. And, you can't what? Uh, I, I'm not following you. It's oppressive North Dakota what? I think I just kind of have that mentality of just kind of like the conserve-ness mm-hmm. in me and I'm still trying to have really had experience with that. Experience with a, with a, with a woman yeah. with the same sex partner. <laughs> yeah, and even her being like my friend and yeah, friends, friend friends, <laughs> friends are a good place to look, particularly you know, if your friend is interested in you and if she's hurling lesbian porn at you, I bet she's interested. If she's saying she wants to make out with you, I bet she's interested. And, you know, you can say to her in advance of, of anything happening, like go to a party, get your flirt on, maybe make out a little and just say, I'm a little worried, you know, because I, I really like you as a friend and I would hate if we became, you know, more physically intimate or if there was a little romance to potentially lose the friendship if, you know, it doesn't go anywhere if it winds down, if, you know, we mess around a little bit and you're not interested in pursuing it or I'm not interested in pursuing it. I would hate for us to lose what brought us together in the first place. So here's the deal. I will fuck you (laughs) or we will get it on. We will roll around. We will do whatever it is that lesbians do or women do when they have that lesbian sex on one condition. You promise me and I promise you that if it doesn't work out, if we, you know, if it's not going to be any sort of permanent thing, that we're going to stay friends even if it's a little bit of work and means powering through a little bit of awkwardness if it doesn't work out. And then you've controlled for the not work out. And then think for a moment about what if it does work out? How awesome could it be if it did work out? You like her. You're in the same school. She knows you have a boyfriend, right? Yeah, she does. And that's not a problem for her. I don't know if they made it clear that it's like part of the relationship's kind of open to that. Mm -hmm. She knows I'm by. She's just no like. Okay, that might be something that you want to inform her of because if she's yeah. operating under the assumption that you're in a relationship, she may falsely assume that that makes you a safe person to flirt with. She may be practicing flirting with another woman 
thinking that, you know, she's bi but she's taken. So I can be flirty and crazy with her and she's not going to take me up on it. She may be flirting with you without actually being physically attracted to you. She may like you as a friend. She may feel like making out with you might be fun. But she might not be interested in sex. But she's interested in women and you're a safe test partner for how do you flirt with women and she's throwing lesbian porn at you and talking dirty to you not because she wants to get in your pants but because she's practicing for when she meets a woman whose pants she does want to get in. So the fact that you actually are available to her potentially, you just might want to say that and then see what happens because that might head this all off at the pass. Once she knows that you're available, she might stop flirting with you. Okay. Sometimes we flirt with people because we know we can't have them, right? Because it makes the flirting safe. Right? Mm-hmm. You see like old, boring, straight, married, monogamous couples do this all the time. They flirt with other boring, straight, married, monogamous people because they know nothing can come of it, right? And sometimes yeah. they, that's playing with fire because sometimes an attraction is kindled and something does come of it, unfortunately. And that can be very disruptive in a boring, straight, monogamous, married context. So she, okay. may be, she may be engaged in that kind of flirting with you. Like, oh, this is safe. She's taken. It can't go anywhere. She's bi. I'm a lesbian or I'm bi. And I want to like feel some female energy in my life, but I don't, you know, don't really want to sleep with her. But this is fun for now until I meet somebody else. Tell her you're available. See what happens. If she still flirts right. with you or she says, oh my god, that's great. I'd love to be your unicorn. I'd love to be your third. I'd love to just be with you if that's okay with your boyfriend. Yeah, that's okay with them. Then just make it a condition that I will be with you so long as we swear on a stack of Bibles, on a stack of bisexual Bibles, whatever the bisexual Bible might be, that if, you know, if, it's, if it doesn't work out, we're going to stay friends. We're going to power through the awkwardness, stay friends. Okay. And if you make that promise to me, you can eat my pussy. If you can't make that promise to me, you can't eat my pussy. This is not a guarantee that if it doesn't work out, you guys are going to stay friends. But you are likelier to stay friends if you are both conscious of having made that commitment going in. Okay. Okay? You're, yeah. You're... You're in college. Go for it. <laughs> Have fun. Uh, and, and if it doesn't work out and it's super awkward, you are not going to be the first American college student who has had to sit in a classroom with someone that they fucked and it didn't work out and it's horrifying and horrible and awkward and strained. That is that – is, that happens. That happens to everybody. It's going to happen to you at some point during your college career. Might as well get it out of the way if it's going to be her. Yeah. Go for it. Give us a call back. Let us know how it went. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. Um, I am calling because I am going over Christmas to visit my prospective in-laws, my boyfriend's family, and I will be meeting his brother for the first time. His brother is currently transitioning, and um, I don't know. That doesn't freak me out. It's fine. The thing is, is that I have a five-year-old daughter, and my boyfriend's parents aren't using the correct pronoun. They're still calling him by a female pronoun, and they refuse to use his male name. Um, but I've introduced my daughter, who is five, to him as this is Adam's brother. And I guess I just want, if you have any general advice on how to deal with this, it's not my family situation. And I kind of have a sense I'd like my boyfriend to get involved and kind of advocate and head off and advocate for his brother, but I don't really feel like it's my role to force any of that to happen, but it is my role to 
speak to my daughter about it. And I want to make sure that I don't give her any like complexes about transgender people. And I want to, I guess I'm just like searching for a good way to talk to kids about people in their lives who are transitioning, especially because it's guaranteed that there's going to be some pronoun confusion and name confusion, and she's going to really want to know what's up. Um, To make things even more complicated, uh, he recently came out as gay, um, whereas before he identified as a lesbian. So I don't really know how to, like, unpack all this for her, and I don't really think she needs the whole story. I just wonder if you have any advice on how to navigate this with my own child. Kids are simple about this stuff. Adults are complicated. Adults are messes. You tell your daughter what she needs to know. This is my boyfriend's brother and you use the appropriate and correct pronouns. And if the sexual orientation thing is somehow material and comes up, you can just say he's gay. He's a man who loves men. And I don't think your daughter's going to notice. She's five years old. It's Christmas. She's going to be on the ceiling with a sugar buzz she, and, and probably not playing with her new toys and, and not really paying attention to how the adults are addressing each other and what pronouns grandma is using versus what pronouns her mother uses in reference to her mother's boyfriend's brother. If she does notice, if she says, why did you call you, your boyfriend's brother Mark when grandma called him Mary? Say, well, Mark was born a girl, but Mark is actually a man and Mark is in transition, which means he's bringing his body and his gender expression into alignment. This is all way too complicated for a five-year-old. Mark was born a girl, becoming a boy. Mark is the name that he'd like people to dress him by. His parents slip up. They're not used to it yet. They'll get there. We're going to use his actual name, which is Mark. Grandma and grandpa were used to calling him Mary for so long that out of habit, they're still calling him Mary, but he's Mark. And your daughter will go, okay, can I have 14,000 more cookies and candy canes and chocolates and whatever else? Are there more presents for me to open? She will get right back to what's important about Christmas. Carbs. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener here and a new Magnum subscriber as well. Uh, I'm a straight woman in my late 20s who's getting married next year, and I have a bigot problem. Both my fiancé and I are huge supporters of marriage equality. And we're planning on incorporating several visible elements into our wedding ceremony, including offering white dots to everyone and having readings from important marriage cases, all that fun stuff. My fiance's sister, who I've also grown very close to in the past few years, is a lesbian who, who is engaged to an awesome woman, and they are going to be both part of the wedding. Though most of my family is accepting and generally awesome, I have a couple of family members who are born-again evangelical Christians and who are definitely not down with marriage equality. I'm sure you understand where this is going. Before the Save the Dates went out, I spoke to my mom about my concerns of inviting those family members, in particular an aunt and uncle of mine. My mom told me that she'd talk to them in advance and would let me or would let them know what we were planning, and if they were asked about it, she'd strongly suggest that they not come. I told my mom, quite frankly, that if I looked out in the crowd at our wedding and saw one of them rolling their eyes or whatever they do since they have shit poker faces, that I very well might punch them in the face. Blood on my wedding dress be damned. My aunt, who's been married twice, of course, since Jesus is totally down with divorce, was the one I expected to have the most negative reaction. However, that was not the case. She responded um, to my mom with something like, you know, I wouldn't expect her to do anything else. I respect her for following her beliefs, blah, blah, blah. No problem. Great. 
My uncle, though, had a much different reaction. He said something along the lines of, uh, oh, that's totally fine. I'll just go out in the middle of the dance floor and make out with her dad or something. If she wants gay in her wedding, she'll get gay in her wedding. And another couple things that I can't say because I'm at work and I would probably scream if I said them. I'm so mad at him. I didn't think he would change his mind about gay marriage, but I didn't expect him to belittle our beliefs, and especially in front of multiple family members. He and I debate things all the time, but we have never, ever resorted to cruel mockery. My mom told me about his reaction a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just still so livid. Needless to say, he's already been taken off the guest list, and uh, the invitation to my aunt will list her name only. Uh, my fiancé and I will be seeing both of them when we head back for Christmas in two weeks, and I really don't know what to do about him. I feel so insulted by what he said and how he said it that I really just want to smack him across the face the moment he walks into the room. I've been to plenty of weddings and other functions for his part of the family, and I sit through all their Jesus stuff respectfully. I don't mock him or anyone else in his family for what they believe in, even though I find it hypocritical and beyond logic. I can't understand why he felt it would be okay to say what he said about our beliefs. My fiancé says I'm overreacting. I should just ignore him because he's acting like a child. I know that that's probably what I should do, but I also feel like I can't allow his comments to go unanswered without any sort of condemnation or general, like, what the fuck, asshole? I have a bigot problem, and I don't know how to handle it. What would you do if you were me? Thanks. Oh, my God, girlfriend. As a gay, I have to say this to you. Buck the fuck up. We're winning. Your uncle is losing. He is on the losing side of history. He is ridiculous. And the way you handle someone like this in your family, you can be indignant. You can be really angry on our behalf and we thank you for that. I'm glad you're so emotionally invested in the struggle. Thank you. Um, but you just look at him and laugh and say, ha ha, you lose, we win. Tide of history is washing you and your bigotries away. Bye-bye. Have a nice time out there on the ice flow or wherever it is the tide of history is washing you out to. And just shrug it the fuck off. That's how you win. How upset you are right now, how, how, how deeply under your skin you've allowed your uncle to get, don't you think that's what he wanted? Don't you think you're kind of handing him a little victory there? Even if you feel angry and upset and you really want to punch him, you know what you do? You go in and you laugh at him. You go in and you shrug it off. You go in and treat him like he's irrelevant, which he is. In your family and increasingly in this society and the culture, his POV, his position is irrelevant and laughable. That's how you win. You say that in your family we have never ever resorted to cruel mockery. That's why your family is different than my family. That's why perhaps you were unprepared for how to respond to this. It's good for there to be a little cruel mockery uh, within families sometime. That You want a little cruel mockery back and forth with the people who love you most. So you know how to roll with it and handle it. You know how to give as good as you get. In an atmosphere or in a – with people who you know fundamentally really love you but they can take the piss out of you. And your uncle in his stupid, anti-gay, bigoted, oafish way tried to take the piss out of you and you're going to go see him on Christmas and you can take the piss right back out of him by laughing at him. You know what I would do if I were you? I would invite the motherfucker to the wedding. Say, yeah, you want to go make out on the dance floor with my dad? Knock yourself out, closet case. And what's a wedding without – a foolish uncle making a jackass out of himself. All we remember about weddings in the long run is what went disastrously wrong. Your uncle making an asshole out of himself as the opponent of marriage equality at your wedding in a, in a way is kind of 
another reading in favor of marriage equality. It is another way of showing the rightness and justice in marriage equality by allowing everyone to see who the opponents are and what they look like and how they behave. So if you can laugh it off, if you can let your uncle go out there on the dance floor with enough rope to hang himself and not feel implicated, I'd invite the motherfucker. I'd send him a drink. I'd send him four. And then I'd make sure it was all captured on video when he decided to make a fucking piece of shit asshole out of himself and I'd put it up on YouTube and win. That's how you win. Good luck and congratulations on your wedding and thank you for your support. Don't let your uncle get under your skin so badly. I have a lot of uncles. If I let my uncles get under my skin the way that you do, I would be mad 24 hours a day. Let it go. Hey, Jason. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm a 40-something-year-old gay man uh, living on the East Coast. My problem has to do with how to deal with my parents. Uh, just a little background. I didn't come out to my parents, but when I was in college living at home, my parents uh, one day ran back my room when I was away and uh, found several incriminating magazines, letters, different items, um, which they confronted me with. And when I admitted I was gay, they kicked me out of the house. That was when I was uh, still in college. Uh, they came around after about two years, and I thought we were pretty much good. We didn't see eye to eye on everything. They still believe being gay is a sin. They're big fundamentalist Christians. But we at least had a relationship. Well, I have a boyfriend of almost 14 years, and my mother always seemed to like him. Uh, they came to Thanksgiving dinner last year um, and seemed to enjoy themselves very much, and they always welcomed him to the house. Problem is, in uh, November of this year, uh, we went to Delaware, and after almost 14 years, we got married. And most of my mother's brothers and sisters and family members came. They did not come to the wedding. Uh, since then, I had not spoken to my mother until this evening. Um, I know you said in the past, the only thing you have that you can take away from your parents who disapprove of you is your presence. Um, I don't know if I should do that or can do that. I talked to my mother. She's cried about this. She's very upset. She's very religious, but she doesn't use it as a weapon. She's not trying to hurt me. Um, she makes it all about herself, and I feel really bad. You can't reason with her. Uh, you can't talk about the Bible with her. You can't recommend that she read different books because she says, you know, I've been a Christian since I was 12, and I've always believed this, and this is right. And I know I'm right because God says this is right. Um, and it's breaking her heart that I got married. My husband is mad at her and wants an apology, will not be in their presence anymore. She doesn't want to be in our presence. She doesn't want to be in the presence of any of her relatives with Christmas coming up. She's canceled showing up at any of our relatives' house, uh, houses because she's mad that they supported our wedding. Um, and it's killing her. She is crying about this. She is so upset. She can't change. She believes she is right no matter what you say. She believes she is right. And I'm wondering short of just saying, you know, F off. I don't want to talk to you ever again. If there's any other advice you can give me um, as to what I might do, obviously there's nothing I think I can say to her that will change, but if there's anything I can do um, to help smooth things over, because my parents are in their mid-70s, they've had some health issues, they're not going to be around much longer, and I don't want them to pass away and not have this resolved. Fuck your mother. Sorry, fuck your mother. Didn't come to your wedding whatever. 
I agree with your boyfriend. I would want to apology. I, I wouldn't want to be in their presence either. But this canceling Christmas and mad at all of your relatives who did come to the wedding and telling them all to fuck off and die, it just sounds like your parents are a couple of toxic nut jobs and that your mother can get under your skin by turning on the waterworks and making it all about her and her feelings and how sad she is. See that for what it actually is. It's just emotional manipulation. It's emotional blackmail. You don't have to subject yourself to it. So don't. Your mother is crazy. I don't know what you could say to her to smooth her over. I assume that over the last 20-ish years, you've tried everything you could to smooth things over. But she's more in love with her pinched, negative, reactionary, conservative, bullshit, hateful, psychotic brand of Christianity than she's in love with her own child. Can't help you. Honestly, I, I, I don't don't know what to say except if I were you, I would have nothing to do with her. I would limit contact. I would call every once in a great while to check in. I would let her know that I'm ready to have a relationship with her when she is ready to have a relationship with me and my partner and my husband. But until then – I can't have a relationship with her at this price and it's her choice. OK. She's made it all about her. Let her. Tell her it's all about her. Yes, you have chosen tears and pain and loneliness and solitude and loss over me and my husband. Sorry, mom. You are the author of your own misery and you can stew in it. And I can't help you. I can't help you crawl out of it if you aren't willing to help yourself. And then because I'm an asshole, I would twist the knife and I would say, I can't imagine that this is what Jesus would want. I can't imagine that this is the tack that Jesus, Prince of Peace and Mr. Love would take. That even if he disapproved, he would have come to my wedding and loved me even if he thought I was an error. Isn't that what this Christian conception of God is all about? Loves us despite our sinful natures? Loves us despite original sin? Loves us despite the fact that we're fallen, whatever else? You're telling me that the Savior that you worship loves you despite your sins. And you cannot model that same behavior. You cannot act as your Savior would act and love me despite mine? And you call yourself a Christian, Mom? That's what I would say to her. I would spin that knife. I wouldn't twist it. I'd twirl it. But some people are beyond past hope. Some people are past fixing. Maybe you'll see her in the afterlife that she's convinced exists. And then you can patch it up there. But this doesn't sound like one that you're going to patch up on earth. This sounds like the marriage in your mother's mind of religious fervor and mental illness. And there's only so long you can beat your head against that brick wall before you have to stop and walk away. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old female going through a divorce from my husband of 17 years. I initiated our separation because I felt that I was no longer getting what I wanted from our marriage. Our intimacy, both physical and emotional, had been waiting for some time. And after about three years of trying to do what we could to reconnect, 
I just couldn't take it anymore and called it. In the last 18 months, I've learned that my husband had been drinking in excess in secret for about the last five years of our relationship. His problem had got, did get quite serious after I left, and he checked himself into rehab. Three months later, after returning home, I found out some more information. He told me that he's actually homosexual. Um, he turned to drinking as a way to deal with his repressed feelings and uh, being gay. But to get to my question, I'll just say that the last eight months has been a variety of ups and downs as I work through my feelings about this. But suffice to say, I'm very, very supportive of him and ultimately just want him to be happy for both of us to be happy. We'll always love each other and be partners and very much in the sense of the definition of partners as put forth in Maria Bella's recent New York Times essay. So my question is, and where we are both struggling, is how and when to talk to our children about this. We have two boys who are ages 10 and 12. They're very adaptable to change and have done well with the divorce. Um, as my husband and I never really fought, they've accepted our separation with remarkable maturity. We're grateful that for this, but obviously continue to watch them closely for signs that they're having a tough time or need some additional support. So, so far, so good. I believe the fact that my ex and I spend so much time together, well, the four of us together as a family shows them that we still care for and respect each other, and that's made it easier on them. So going forward, we don't want to hide my ex's sexuality from them, but we aren't sure of when and how to tell them. In your opinion, and you and Terry's experience with your son, what type of information on the subject is appropriate for their age? When should we tell them? How should we tell them? What kind of details? We want them to hear about it from us and not someone else in our community, like a friend of theirs, parent or a friend of theirs. Um, my husband is in a relationship currently. They know the man, but know him as a friend. Uh, and we'd like to be more honest about who this person really is and as well as who my husband really is or my ex-husband. So I appreciate any guidance you can provide our little modern family on this. I'm going to give some advice that people might not expect from me in, in this instance um, out of deference to the two children involved here and, and their feelings and their tender ages and their vulnerability at this moment. Um, I don't think it would be advisable. I don't think it's also necessary at this moment for your husband, your ex-husband to come out to your kids as gay because what that communicates I think to these kids potentially or the sort of kid logic place they may go with that is dad never loved mom. Their relationship was a lie. We are their children. We are the product of that lie, that we are the result of dad's deception, not the result of dad's affection or mom's affection for dad. We are evidence lingering after effects of a great con. That was dad pretending to love mom when he didn't and couldn't. So it might be better at ages 10 and 12 instead of dad coming out to them as gay and at 10 and 12 in America now, these kids, they know what gay is. They're not that naive. They may already figure who dad's special friend is actually to him. Instead of coming out as gay or bi or anything, coming out to them as being in a relationship with a man now. And letting them make whatever leaps they want to make from there. And if they want to sit him down, if they want to talk to him, particularly the older child, want to talk to him about who he actually is and what it actually means, let them lead the conversation. You know, we talk about when you roll out sex and sexual information to children, it being age appropriate. 
And part of age appropriateness, I think, is sometimes allowing the child to ask the questions and to answer the questions honestly without getting out in front of the child's questions. So your ex-husband may come out to your children as being in a relationship with this man now and he loves this man and he still loves you. You guys are still a family. Um, but he's now with this person and isn't love grand and isn't love interesting and compelling and isn't it wonderful? And then his kids may ask him, you know, when he f fell in love with a man, how did that happen? And, you know, when did he know he was attracted to men? Just let them lead. But at least for now, you might want to allow them a little space to acclimate to this and to what it means that their father is either bi or gay and what it means about them. And I just worry at age 10 or 12 or even a, a tiny bit younger that to negate potentially these 17 years in their eyes that they may hear dad is gay if he comes out to them as gay and think badly of themselves and feel guilty for their own existences that they were not something that dad wanted, that what dad wanted was to be in a relationship with a man but dad got into a relationship with a woman because he felt he had to. He felt he had no choice. That this was a negative for dad. That dad used to drink when he was with mom. And we're all part of that trap that dad stumbled into because he couldn't be out. Because he couldn't be who he really was. And if all of that might potentially come bundled up with the I'm gay, always gay, was never attracted to your mother. Maybe better for now just to tell them the most important truth in this instance at this time, which is that dad is in a new relationship and that new relationship is with a man and that you love their father still and you accept and appreciate his new partner just as he will one day accept and appreciate your new partner when a new man comes into your life. And then answer their questions and see where it goes and give them time. In a few years, they could probably be in a place where they'll, they can hear that dad is gay, that dad was always gay and understand that maybe they are the product of a closet culture that mau mowed their father into making choices that weren't the choices he would have made if he'd felt freer to be who he actually was sooner but that he's still grateful for those choices that perhaps were imposed on him at that time because they are the result. They are the silver lining. I just worry that at this age – they may not be able to get to we are the silver lining, we are the saving grace. They may get to a negative understanding of who they are and how they came into the world if you're not careful. If indeed dad slaps the gay label on himself right now. So slap the – with a man now on him. They may go to gay. They may just go dad is gay or dad is gay now and even that might be better than dad, dad was gay always for their self-esteem, for their understanding of themselves, for their appreciation of their family and what it was and what it will be going into the future. So that's my hemi hawaii, slightly hypocritical because I'm the pro-labels guy advice for you. Your ex-husband lucked out being married to you. You sound like a loving and compassionate person and your children are at such an advantage that they have you for a mom and now at a greater advantage that they have a healthy, more secure, happier dad around in their lives as well. 
Thanks for the call. And we're not going to leave it there. Not quite. We have one more thing for you. It's our little Christmas present for you this week, Christmas Day, Savage Lovecast. Dina Martina is a performer extraordinaire, a tragic singer, a horrible dancer, a surreal raconteur. She's hysterically funny and she is, for Seattle listeners, performing right now her Christmas show at Rebar in Seattle. Go to dinamartina.com to buy tickets. She's performed all over the world in London and Europe, Provincetown, but she's a Seattle original and she she's indescribable. If you haven't seen her, I, I can't do her justice. I cannot describe her, but Dina Martina recorded a Christmas album a couple of years ago that's one of our favorites, mine and Terry's. We play it every year on Christmas Day at our house for our neighbors and our friends. And Dina graciously gave us permission to play one of the tracks from her Christmas album here on the Christmas kind of depressing Savage Love cast. So here's a little something from Dina Martina to cheer us all up on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas to all you out there who are enjoying one. What is Christmas? Do you really want to know? All right. I will tell you. Christmas is more than just giving and taking. It's more than snowmen and snowballs and snow. It can be as simple as the glint of the snow on the soft summer breeze. Or just smiling at a blind person on the street. It's that cold December Christmas Eve so long ago when Mary and Joseph made that journey across the Sahara on a camel. And there was no room at the inn for them. So Mary turned to Joseph and said, I told you we should have made reservations. And Joseph said, Why don't you have a baby in that barn over there? And she said, Okay. And when they went inside the barn, Mary's water broke. So Joseph tore up some sheets and boiled the water. Not Mary's water, of course. He boiled some other water. But Mary's contractions got closer and closer together. But she wasn't worried, because she remembered the training she received in her Lamaze class. So she panted like a dog, and Jesus came out. And then, three wise men came. And then, a cow. And then, a couple of sheep. And the wise man presented Mary with gifts like incense and peppermint. But they were very tired, the wise men. And more than that, they were hungry. So Mary got up and made them a big Christmas dinner with turkey and dressing and stuffing and maple bars and nutmeg. Then they all sat around the fire and roasted marshmallows and sang campfire songs. The end.
And we're going to leave it there. Thank you, Dina Martina. And a thank you to Tim LaFollette of the Popovers, the late Tim LaFollette, who recorded our theme song here at the Savage Lovecast and also was so kind as to create for us a Christmas version of our theme song for us to play every year. Uh, Tim died a few years ago of ALS, very tragically, uh, and we're thinking of him. Wherever you are, Tim, now, thank you again. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dina Martina on Twitter at Dina Martina. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk you then, Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.